Well, hey, if we haven't met, my name's Aaron. I have never seen that movie, but uh, I was, I'm, I'm serious. Uh, actually, I was kind of amazed when I did a Google search for end of the world movies, how many of them I hadn't seen. Uh, but probably not surprisingly, as I was surveying clips and that kind of thing, uh, most of them are like this, you know, like the details are a little bit different. Sometimes it's a tidal wave or a freeze or all different things. But uh, generally speaking, when we watch films about the end of the world, it doesn't end well. It's uh, very violent and ends in total destruction. And I actually thought about, originally when we started the series, I wanted to show like a, a movie clip like every day uh, or every week as we were going through it. But I couldn't take it. Like I was watching the, the, the clips. I'm like, oh, we can't lead off with this every week. So this is the one week um, where we're starting on a down note. And, and the, reason, the reason is uh, it really sets up well what we're talking about this morning. And if you're just joining us, uh, we're in this series in Revelation. And, you know, the book of Revelation, oftentimes the focus becomes this around the conversation, as if the entire book is all about like this crystal ball mentality through which we find out all the things that are going to take place and exactly how they're going to run out and all that stuff. Uh, but that's not the focus at all. And one of the things that we talked about is the focus is, is Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus. It's all about unveiling Jesus. Uh, and it was written to real Christians in real time, in real space, uh, to challenge and encourage them. They were about to face a lot of suffering. Um, and so the focus is there. But one of the things we, all, we have also said, though, is even though the focus of the book isn't this, it does have some things to say about what is to come. And, uh, and I think it's really, really important that we go there. And it's part of the reason that I really want to do this series, if I'm really honest, uh, because of this, this stuff. Um, I, I want to talk about how this, this wraps up. Because a lot of the conversation, whether it's Christian or secular, whether it's Hollywood, or whether you know, you're picking up a fiction or nonfiction book at the Christian bookstore, uh, sounds and looks a lot like this. And depending on what you believe about this, it hugely affects, I would suggest, it does. It affects the way that we live uh, in some pretty profound ways, right? When you know how the story ends, it, it affects everything, you know? So just by way of example, if you had the opportunity to travel back in time, to about 100 years, uh, to 1911, and just kind of live there for a while and get to experience it, which, which would be an amazing opportunity, and you made, you, you know, made some friends and, and somebody offered you, said, hey, I, you're not going to believe this, but... I want, a, I want a road trip with you of sorts, and I've got a ticket for you. The largest ocean liner ever built is about to take its maiden voyage from the U.K. to New York City, and uh, you don't have to pay me. It's just a gift. It's incredibly expensive, but we're going to party like it's ni- 1929 and just have a riot. Uh, you know, oh, the name? Oh, by the way, it's a Titanic. You know, you and I both know you're not getting on that ship. You know what I mean? And you're going to be pleading with your friends, don't get on that ship, right, because you know how the story ends, right? Likewise, if you were to find out uh, somehow when your last breath was going to be breathed. And you come to find out that you're not going to live to a ripe old age uh, and fall asleep spooning with your loved one while you sleep and both die at the same time, uh, which, spoiler alert, none of us are going out like that. Um, you know, but you find out you only have like three months to live. Like, I think for many of us, like, that, would, that would profoundly change some things in our daily routine. You know, and so we all believe certain things about about ourselves and about this life, and, and it affects so many things. You know, uh, you and I, we, we have friends who, who don't believe, you know, a lot of the stuff that we believe. Uh, I've got friends who are, you know, atheists. And, you know, when you believe that your life is kind of an accident, it's an opportunity, but it's an accident, you're just a bag of chemicals. When this life is over, you're going in the ground, and that's it, lights out. Like, when you believe that, right, you, 
you live a certain way. You make decisions a certain way. When you, when you believe that, you know, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and uh, that he has saved and redeemed you and your opportunity, you are invited to worship him with your life uh, and you get to spend eternity with him, right? That affects some things. It affects the way that you live. When you believe that the end of the world is essentially that, uh, which m- most evangelicals, maybe I can say that, many evangelicals believe that, that in the end everything gets destroyed and you just kind of get, you know, beamed up, Scotty, just before things get really rough for seven years, but in the end it's totally total annihilation, that affects some things. It affects the decisions that you make. And so all that to say, like, what we believe about this really, really matters. And, and there's an idea specifically, this, we're talking about, you know, like the rapture, uh, that is so incredibly widespread um, in fact, it's, it's, we hear about it so much in fiction and nonfiction, from Hollywood, from wherever Christian movies are made, probably not Hollywood, uh, you know, from preachers and cert- of the certain flavor, you know, on television. It's been talked about so much. Scholars talk about this. They said it's so widespread at this point that so many, that Christians just assume that it's true, right? It sounds biblical, and it's just kind of, it's just kind of everywhere, right? And it's in the songs that we sing, right? I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, where am I going? Away, flying away. You know, one glad morning when my life is over, I'll fly away. You know, I heard one Presbyterian pastor, this was a song that he was taught in his kids' ministry at his church when he was little. Somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place for all those who trust him and obey. The countdown's getting closer every day. You know, and and, uh, obviously Left Behind is a huge part of this. I didn't realize until this week, there's 16 of those books. Anybody have the full collection, just out of curiosity? We're not going to shame you, I promise. No? No? Okay, gosh, I'm proud of you guys. Proud. Um, no, truth is, I've heard it's actually a really engaging read. Really, really great fiction. Um, but it's so widespread, uh, and it's had such an impact over the last 20 years, that it's everywhere. Um, I don't know what the, the total is at this point, but I think it's upwards of 60 million books have been sold. Uh, there's been kids' curriculum and books that have been written based on the Left Behind series and Rapture theology. Uh, there's been board games. There's been video games. There's been uh, numerous spinoffs. Um, the end times, the thing is, the end times industry at this point, it's like an enormous lucrative industry. There's a lot of money uh, in end time stuff, which is why the stuff just continues to be, to be written. And, uh, but it's created something really, really interesting. Um, in this whole frame of thought, essentially, right, there's this... this this very specific countdown that, uh, that God is laying out. And everything is, just gets worse, right? And so, so everything is part of cos- God's cosmic playbook leading up to the end. Right? So every failed United Nations peace plan, right? every earthquake, every flood, every tsunami, uh, every drought, every terrorist attack, uh, every deadly disease, every war, every horrible thing that happens in this world essentially gets explained away as being a part of God's cosmic playbook until it all builds up to the final event, they say, the bloody battle of Armageddon. And one of the pastors that's pretty big in this is a guy by the name of John Hagee. And I didn't realize this until after first service, but one of the gals from Mosaic, she grew up in his church. And uh, so we need to pray for her. But, um, <laughs> but he, he pastors a, a really, I'm sure he's a good man, but I just profoundly disagree with him, and it's important we talk about this. Uh, Pastor's a really big church, and he's written a lot of end times books, full of all kinds of wild speculations, specific dates, crazy, crazy stuff, uh, a lot of it. Uh, in my, I, my mind, bad theology, but his picture is a really good illustration of just how this line of thinking is. The picture's of a time clock, 
right? It's a, it's a clock that is counting down until all, you know, lights go out and this thing is over. And he gets, he gets his, his picture from uh, the bulletin of the atomic scientists. There's a bunch of nuclear scientists that wanted to alert the, the world to threat of nuclear annihilation, like when things are really dicey. Uh, and so they took a, a clock hand, and they, they put it seven minutes from midnight. And when things get scary in the whole nuclear arms bit thing, uh, it gets closer to midnight, right? And the better that we're doing, uh, the further from annihilation, you know, they project that we are, uh, it gets further away, right? They created that specifically to warn people, educate people to, to hopefully avoid uh, nuclear disaster, right? However, in the whole end times rapture theology bit, uh, annihilation is inevitable, uh, and so some of them, some of, the, some of the people end up just reveling in it, right? And so when horrible things happen, you've got some Christians celebrating somewhere because it's one step closer to them getting their whisked off the earth and off the heaven somewhere else card finally. Uh, and so this is really problematic, as you might guess. And so I, I want to put some stuff on the table for you to consider. Uh, first of all, one of the things that's problematic about this is this way of reading biblical, biblical prophecy is less than 200 years old. 19th century is uh, when it was created over in Western Europe. Before then, we didn't read Revelation this way. We didn't think about biblical prophecy this way. We didn't think about heaven this way. You know, and, and so we got to just, just think about that for a moment. And, and I'm not against, you know, I think it's very possible that we can discover things 2,000 years later um, uh, in the Bible that maybe we missed. But if you're going to say that every man and woman who has devoted their life from all corners of the world to studying and interpreting the scriptures together over the last 2,000 years. Everybody's wrong, but I'm right, and I just now discovered it. You better have a really good argument. You know what I mean? You're like, you, you really have got to have some compelling, compelling evidence uh, for what you're saying and be willing to humbly submit what you're suggesting to the church to wrestle with and say, like, does this make sense? Is this consistent with the rest of scriptures? Uh, and so I'll put that out there. Just it's, not, it's, it's a, relatively, a relatively new idea uh, altogether. Uh, secondly, uh, equally as important, this kind of thinking about the world in the end has disastrous consequences on the lives, the way that we live our lives. Uh, it makes for horrible ethics. Uh, it postures us to live essentially with this escapist mentality uh, that personally I would suggest to you has no place in the Bible or the God that it bears witness to. And I would suggest to you it leads us in a precisely the opposite way that Jesus calls and invites us uh, to live, right? So just think about this with me for a moment, right? If you think that the world is essentially just going to be absolutely annihilated and destroyed in the end, you're not going to be particularly passionate about taking care of it. Um, it's led to all kinds of uh, social injustice issues in the Middle East. Uh, it, use, it, it leads people inevitably to just use and abuse this world, which in the end, I mean, that doesn't affect those of us who are, the, you know, some of the wealthiest people in the world, but it does affect the most vulnerable. I remember reading uh, an article a few years ago uh, in a developing nation. There was a, a company that was uh, really expanding, making a lot of money, but they were putting so much pollution into the air that it changed the local climate, which didn't affect them. Right? People who lived in the city, it really didn't affect their life much at all. But to those who depended on agriculture to survive and to live, uh, had disastrous consequences, right? The air was so polluted that the water, the rain, when it fell, had a certain toxicity level that didn't allow for certain plants to grow. And people literally starved to death, right? But that's where the thinking goes, 
right? And so like Ann Coulter, right? You know her? Um, right-wing pundit, uh, conservative, huge, huge national platform. Um, she said some things along the way that I disagree with. Uh, but she said this. God gave us the earth. We have dominion over the planets, the animals, the trees. God said, the earth is yours. Take it, rape it. It's yours. Right? So you get to start to at least get a feel for where this thinking, how dangerous this thinking can be. Right? And more importantly, I suggest to you guys that, that it's just not a biblical idea. You know, and so in our remaining time, I just want to look at a few passages that those who talk about the rapture as like this big theological idea and big biblical truth, these are some of the main passages that are often used uh, to present this idea. And I just want us to just kind of open up and see uh, whether this is really something that we find in the scripture. So one of those uh, is in our book, Revelation 4, right? So we find out early on what the book is about. It's about Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus. Then in chapters 2 and 3, we've got the, the letters to the seven churches, uh, which is a series unto itself. Uh, so we're not digging in there uh, in this series. It's just an, uh, it's their own series. But then in chapter 4, he starts to get into the meat of the content. And this is what we find in verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> After this, I looked. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet. And he said... Uh, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this, right? Something that's going to happen relatively soon. And at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Uh, and then the rest of the chapter goes to flesh this out, and that's it. And, and what is the common teaching is that when John says, you know, this voice says to John, come up here, that that's a reference to the rapture, right? Christians being sucked off the earth and into the ether to be with God somewhere else. So we got to do what we've been doing in this series, what we try to do all the time. That's, right, the whole purpose of interpretation, the way you got to go about doing it, right, is we need to get in the mind of the original audience, right? We don't ask, hey, what does this sound like and feel like to me in 2017, right? We ask, how would they have heard and understood this, right? And so when the original audience hears this voice saying to John, you know, come up here, I want to show you some things, right? Call me crazy, but I think they would have, what they would have heard and understood is a voice that said, come up here, I want to show you some things, Right, that's literally all it says. That's all it says. Uh, there's, nothing, there's nothing before or after this verse that would lead us to believe that this has anything to do with rapture and the idea of a rapture. Uh, it's just, it's not there. There's, there's no hint of a church anywhere in this verse, uh, let alone like the, the church at the end of time. Um, he's talking to John and he simply wants to show John some things. And so he goes and he shows John some things. That's all that's there. You know, and so to take an idea like, the rapture, and to, it, it, to impose on it the idea of the rapture on this verse, you just can't find it there. So whether or not you believe in the rapture or not, uh, if you don't believe me, this will be online, and you can pick apart every word and prove me wrong, but it's just not there. Right? Another one is 1 Thessalonians 4, and some of you have heard this one uh, for sure, verses 16 to 17. Uh, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord uh, forever. Right? So it sounds, if you've been told this idea of rapture uh, your entire life, right, this sounds pretty straightforward. Right? God comes back. There's a trumpet. We're sucked up. Meet him in the clouds. Uh, that kind of a thing. Another one, uh, and we're going to come back to this. Luke 17, verses 34, 35. Um, there's also Matthew and Mark versions, but we're just looking at the Luke version. I tell you this, I tell you that on that night, two people will be in one bed, and one will be taken, and the other left. And two women will be grinding grain together, and one will be taken, 
and one and the other left. Right, again, if you're thinking it's rapture, you read this, it's like, oh man, how can it get any clearer than that? Right, comes back and God takes certain people. Other ones are left uh, behind. Right, and so again, we have to think about, okay, well, let's, let's think about this then. Let's look at the world of the Bible. Uh, the important thing is not how we have been told to understand it or like what it means to us in 2017, we think. But how would they have heard this, right? And if you've ever studied, like, a foreign language, just out of curiosity, how many people have studied a foreign language at some point? Yeah? Okay, a good number of us. Okay, so you know this. So when you're studying a foreign language, right, one of the hardest things to get are, like, the sayings, right? The, the expressions, the idioms, where it's like, what they're saying is not literal. It means something to that culture. But as somebody who doesn't know the language, right, it's set, we, we don't get it. So, for example, we, we do this in the English language all the time. If you ever talk to anybody, it's one of the hardest things about learning the English language. We have so much slang, right? So we say things like this. Uh, man, I'm really under the gun. Right? You're learning this language. Right? It, it's hard. Uh, it cost me an arm and a leg. Right? The ball is in their court. I'm feeling under the weather. She was really burning the midnight oil. Promise me you won't cut any corners. I'm going to hit the sack. It's raining cats and dogs outside. Right? We could go on and on and on, literally. Hundreds of these things. Right? And if you're just learning the language, and by the way, remember, we're thousands of years removed on the other side of the world, ancient language, ancient culture, and you're trying to learn this, and somebody says it's raining cats and dogs outside. Right? You take it literally. You're like, no, it's not. And that does not make any sense whatsoever. Right? That's not what it means. Right? It's, it's a way of saying. Right? And so we've got to get into their way, their way of thinking. So looking at 1 Thessalonians 4, our first passage, right, the author talks about the trumpet. Right? Trumpet was used to simply announce the king is coming. Right? The king is coming. Right? So as it relates, when it's talking to describe God, it's saying God is coming. His presence is coming. We are going to be in that presence. And uh, he is king. God's presence is coming to earth. And then it says this. This is so important for us. It says he's riding on the clouds. Right? I've seen T-shirts. I almost bought one. And it was literally like Jesus riding on the clouds. And the clouds was like a stallion. And he had something in his hand. I can't remember what it was. Um, right? And, and, but here's the thing. If, if you do like a study of the language and just the Bible, this phrase is used all over the place. All over the place. Right? And so it says things all over the Bible where Yahweh or the Son of Man is riding on the clouds. He's riding on the clouds. He's riding on the clouds. The original audience, nobody takes that literally. Nobody would take that literally. In fact, if you look at the context not a single version of this that's used and said anywhere in the Bible is literal, right? It, it's, it's metaphorical, right? And so here's, another, here's an example of one, uh, Psalm 18, uh, 9 11. And he's simply talking about how God saved him from his enemies. That's the context. That's what he's talking about. He says this, He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky, right? Nobody would have read that literal, right? He's simply expressing that God came and saved him, right? And he's using metaphorical language, right? Did he mount an actual cherubim and fly, right? Did he fly in the wings of the wind? What does that look like? I've never seen the wings of the wind, right? It's metaphor, it's language. And so if in every other instance in the Bible it's used as a metaphor, there's really no reason for us to think that in 1 Thessalonians 4 now, Paul's using this one instant as literal, Right? Uh, moving on. Another thing he says, uh, says that Paul says we will be caught up in the clouds. Right? In the Greek, and this is where people say, like, rapture. That's where we get the word rapture. Well, the word rapture is not in the Bible anywhere. Right? This idea of caught up in the Greek, what it means is to seize property. Right? To say mine. Right? I've, you belong to me. I own you. Right? And so it's, 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 a, 
It, it, that's, a, that's exactly what it's saying. It's saying when, when God comes back, that's exactly what he's going to do with his people. Seize them. He's going to seize us. We are his, uh, mine, right? We belong to him. And then it says that we'll meet the Lord in the air. Now, again, worldview, guys. When we hear the word air, right, we think oxygen, we think space, right? We think physical air, right? To them, that's not what it, that, they didn't think that way. In their cosmology, that's not what air was. Air was a domain of authority, which is why you'll read in the Bible, it says like uh, uh, Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is talking about the earth, right? It, it's because, in, and we know theologically, right, the earth is kind of Satan's playground right now uh, in, this, uh, in this time in history, right? It's simply talking about the earth is his domain of authority, right? It's not saying that his, his domain of authority is from, you know, 2,000 feet above sea level to 25,000 feet. That's the air in which he rules, you know. Uh, that's not the way they would have they thought about it. It's not the way they used the term, right? It's, it's a domain of authority. Um, so, when they, so when you say some things like, uh, so when they hear this, right, nobody's thinking literal. It's just not the way the language is even being used uh, in this phrase. So, so when, it, you know, somebody in the first century says, look, the Lord is riding on the clouds. They don't think literal, right? That's the equivalent of, of somebody saying, you know, we've got a real barn burner on our hands. You know, if we ask, well, whose barn is burning? Who is this barn burner? We need to hold him responsible, right? It's, it, no, it, it means it's a great game. That's all it means, right? It's what it means to us. So you got to pay attention to how these things are used uh, throughout the Bible. Oh, but Aaron, what about the other passage, man? Right? It literally says one will be taken and one will be left behind, right? Uh, it, it's got to be referring to something. And it is referring to something, but I, I just don't think it's the rapture, friends. So, so let's read it again just with a little bit of context this time. So Luke 17, uh, 34, this is what we read. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed, and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, and one will be taken and the other left. Aaron, it's right there. Right? Apologize about all the things you said about Tim LaHaye. Um, <laughs> it's got to be referring to something. All right, we'll just keep reading. Just keep reading, all right? You don't have to know anything about the world of the Bible to see this. Got to keep reading. Uh, one will be taken, the other left. Verse 27, they ask, where, Lord? Right, where are they going to be taken? And this is what we read. To heaven? Uh-uh. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. All right, so sit on that for a second. So if this is talking about the rapture, God comes back, takes certain people, grinding grain, working in the fields, in their homes, leaves the rest, and those people that are taken are thrown into a pile of bodies where the, the vultures are circling. Why does it sound like the people who are left are actually the fortunate ones? That's because they are. All right, that's because this is not talking about this idea of rapture. Um, historically, we know that some things happened that just shed a lot of light on this. The, the reference here is the attack of, of Rome on Jerusalem. And what we know is that, you know, the Israelites have been causing problems for, for Rome for a long time. Uh, their Jewish customs made things very complicated. They refused to fall into line and act like the Romans. Uh, and then you had the Zealots, you know, which are talked about uh, in the scriptures. And they were violent. And so in a kind of a guerrilla warfare kind of a way, they, they were killing Roman officers and Roman soldiers. And when it got to be too much and Rome just had had enough, they decided they were going to just squash them. And in 66 AD, they surrounded Jerusalem. And we know this historically happened. And this is what they did, exactly. 
They went into people's workplaces and homes and ripped some of them out of bed. Not all of them, just ones they wanted to make an example of. And they marched them out on a hill and they crucified them. Right? And, and, then, and then they just threw the bodies away. And this is, this is how Rome did things. right? This is how they kept peace, the Pax Romana. They terrorized people. They terrorized them into submission. And this is what they did in 66 AD. And then they took all those bodies and they threw them in a mass grave. Which if you're an Israelite, that's blasphemous. That is so dishonoring. That's so disrespectful. And so loved ones would go looking for the bodies of their loved ones. And how do they find where the mass grave is? They would look for the vultures. You know, and, and so you read this and it's like, this, this, is, this is what Jesus is referring to. You don't, in fact, you didn't even have to know that historical bit to read that the passage is clearly not talking about left behind uh, rapture theology. But then when you know the historical piece, it's like, oh, okay, wow. So, so all that to say, I put this on the table because one of the things you find, you start to dig a little bit, and you find that some of the passages that are used the most to justify and explain this idea of Christians being sucked into the sky and avoiding tribulation, all this stuff, uh, are actually, they're pretty weak. Pretty weak. And then you, then you add to that the fact that it's only been around since the 19th century that it was invented. And... Uh, Man, it, it, you just find out it's, it's a new idea. It's a new idea. It's not an orthodox Christian idea. Um, and most importantly, I submit to you guys, it's, it's not a biblical one. Uh, <clears throat> number one, you'll notice in the Left Behind books, uh, as in all rapture theology, that there is no focus on how Jesus taught us to live and to pray. Nowhere do you find either the, the focus or just the prayer, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is to heaven. Right? Jesus taught an urgency of his kingdom. He kept saying the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Right? And over and over and over, the, the focus in the Bible is not to, to wait around, bunker down, and eventually escape, like this escapist mentality from earth. It's all about bringing heaven to earth. Right? That was Jesus's, I mean, that was such a central part of Jesus' message, uh, the gospel. Right? And, and so... There's this urgency about the kingdom that is still very much alive for us today. The focus ought to be in participating with God here and now. But the whole rapture thing, that, that whole theological tribe, that's just not the focus at all. Uh, secondly, I submit to you this. All right, rapture theology leads to the dishonoring and mistreatment of creation. Something the Bible tells us uh, bears witness to the character of God. Right? And something that God insisted over and over and over again, this is good, this is good, this is good. Right? If, you, if you believe that this earth is essentially just going to get annihilated and burned up and destroyed, well, you're not going to be particularly passionate about taking care of the place, are you? Right? You're not going to be too matter, you know, you're not going to think a lot or care much about, about living in a way that the earth can actually sustain. You know, or using, abusing, uh, mistreating animals. Now, of course, you start preaching that God cares about those things, and what do people immediately label you as? Liberal, right? Oh, man, Aaron's a liberal. I knew he was a liberal. I've been telling you guys for years, right? Uh, you're just, just a liberal, tree-hugging, animal-loving, kale-eating, touchy-feely, snowflake liberal, right? right? And some of us, we've heard this. Man, we've heard this. And, and I will be accused. I have been accused of being liberal. Uh, but this, if that's where you land, people have told you that. Just quick challenge. Just in your own personal study, just do some Googling and searching all the passages of the Bible where God communicates a love and appreciation for creation itself, for the earth. 
and when he in calling and commanding us to do the same. And then while you're at it, also look at all the strong warnings where God warns those who mistreat this planet, right, which our original mandate was to care for. Right, so just by way of example, Re- Revelation in our book, chapter 11, what we don't find is the earth ablaze and, or, or God saying, yeah, use it, rape it, do whatever you want. In fact, this is what we read in chapter 11. The time has come to judge the dead and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Whoo! Don't tell me God doesn't care about this earth and about the way that we actually live, right? This is one of those things that we have to take very, very, very seriously. It's not a liberal thing. It's a biblical thing. Uh, yeah. And, 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 and thirdly, you've heard me say this again, but it just bears repeating, especially as we talk about this, okay? Uh, the Bible does not end with Christians being whisked away, vacuumed into the sky to be with God in heaven somewhere else. It doesn't. Right? It ends with heaven and earth crashing into one another. Right? It ends with God coming back here with Jesus setting up his kingdom in its fullness here, right, with invading the, every nook and cranny of this planet with his power and his presence and his glory, right? And, and this, is, this is Old Testament, this is New Testament, this is Revelation, right? It, it's, it's everywhere. And again, this affects things. Man, it affects things. Isaiah sixty-five seventeen. we read this. One of the most famous prophets wrote more material. He was the Stephen King of prophets. You know, it's like he's writing another book? Yes, and I'm going to buy it. Uh, says this, see, behold, listen up, pay attention. I will create new heavens and a new earth. New heavens and a new earth. Why would we need a, a new earth if it's just going to be burned up? Isaiah 66, 22, just in case you didn't miss it, wanted to say it again in the next chapter. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. Right, and then a couple, few hundred years later, Peter, the disciple, comes along, writes a couple of books, follower of Jesus, disciple of Jesus, and he writes this, 2 Peter 3.13. But in keeping with this promise, this thing that God has promised us he will do, in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to, and here's that phrase again, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And then we find it again at the end of the book of Revelation. We're talking about the very end of the Bible. And this is what we read. So good, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw what? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer uh, any sea. And the sea was symbolic of, of, of evil. God doesn't have anything against aquatic life. <clears throat> I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will then wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Right? And in the Greek, there are multiple words for the word new. Right? There's the kind of new that's Genesis new. Right? Where God is speaking into existence things that were not brand new, did not exist before. That's not the word that's being used here. There's another new, right? And that's the new, uh, new which means to be redeemed, to, be, to make new, to renew, to refinish, to restore to its original intent, right? And that is what we're told is the culmination of the story that we are a part of, right? And so when we talk about heaven, uh, we have this conversation with our kids like all the time. Uh, the other night, 
And you can call me a geek. I know it's a pastor thing. But the other night I was putting the girls to bed and they were asking questions about heaven. And Paige was like, Dad, so, so heaven is coming to earth, right? You know, and I was like, I am so proud of you. Yes, you know, uh, yes, yes it is. And when we talk about heaven, it's not, you know, an endless church service in the sky, you know, where there's little angels with diapers and bow and arrows and, and we just sing and sing and sing and sing and sing up in the clouds. Right, if you want to get a picture, a better picture, as much as we can imagine it, for what heaven will be like, especially on a day like this, go outside. Breathe in the air. Grill out to the glory of God. Let the sun hit your face. Jump on the trampoline. Watch your kids play. Right? That's heaven. Right? Heaven is, if you could take this creation... And take the good things, right? And by the way, Hagee talks about how God is just going to destroy everything and how all the places where, where people don't live are uninhabitable and therefore worthless. So deserts, mountains, oceans, oh yeah, to hell with those. He literally teaches this, right? Things that God said, no, it's good, it's good, it's good, right? The, the trees clap their hands, right? All of creation is groaning. All of creation, the good stuff reflects me, right? And, and so if you can just think about the good stuff, the sunsets, right, the breeze, Right, the mountains, the oceans, those moments where it's just like all is the way that it's meant to be. And you could take out the death and the suffering, all the horrible stuff. Kids being used and abused, homes without dads, refugees who have nowhere to go, people who are starving to death. And you take all of that out, we're told that's heaven. Right, that's what the kingdom of God looks like. And that's, that's how this story ends, which is why Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. Right? God promised, remember in Genesis, to never destroy this place again. And we're led to believe that he changed his mind and he's going to light it up. I, 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 don't, I don't think so. Now, God, God does not give up on his real estate. Right? This is not an evacuation, prop, uh, uh, an evacuation project. This is a restoration project. You know, and being a part of living the kingdom away is we actually get to be a part of that. And the good stuff isn't going to be lit aflame. Right? The good stuff continues on. Right? It, which means those conversations, those acts of compassion, right? Those things where you care for the earth, right? Where, where, you're, where you're gardening, where you're planting trees, those things are eternal in nature. Right, that's why the, if you got your notes, I have that quote at the top of the page. Uh, Martin Luther, I love this quote. He said, you know, if I knew the world was going to end tomorrow, I would plant a tree. Why is that? It's because that is an investment in eternity. Right? That is participating in the kingdom. And it means that ev- all those small things that you and I do day in and day out, week in and week out, week out where we live in a kingdom way, where we love people with the grace and the compassion and selflessness of Jesus, where we take part in, in justice, in working for justice, in advocating for people who, who, who are under-resourced, you know, or who can't fight for themselves, you know, or just do not have adequate opportunities when we do those things. We are participating in eternity, right? Those are the things that get to last. They're that important. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to end by reading a quote because I'm out of time. This is by N.T. Wright. So good. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. 
And if this applies to ethics, as in 1 Corinthians 6, it certainly also applies to the various vocations to which God's people are called. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, brewing beer, I added that one, campaigning for justice, (laughs) campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are a part of what we call building for God's kingdom. And that's our invitation. Maybe so. Let's, let's pray as we get ready to close in worship. Lord God, I know what we're talking about really pushes back on some of the things that uh, many of us were taught growing up. And so there's probably a certain amount of internal conflict. Some asking how in the world could this be? Could it be possible? Lord God, I ask that you would open up our hearts and minds to what is true. That as we dialogue, even where we disagree, that there would be grace. But Lord, I do, I pray, I ask that you would put to death in us once and for all this escapist mentality where we bunker down and and remove ourselves from the world and, and buy into Gnosticism, it's heresy to think that you are good and creation is evil. The church rejected that a long time ago and yet we read it so often in some of these books and stuff. Just, Lord God, I ask that you would help us to see the goodness in your creation, your smile in the sunset, Lord God. I ask that you would help us to humbly open ourselves up to, Lord, even now as we come before you in worship. Areas of our life, Lord, where we are living in such a way that reflects more of an escapist mentality than a kingdom way. Lord God, as we think about how we invest our time, how we spend our money, how we treat your good creation, how we engage with this world and the people in it. Lord God, I believe with everything in me that you are not giving up on this thing, that your kingdom work has only begun. And Lord God, I ask that you would continue to shape us as a community and as individuals, Lord, and the people who live in your kingdom way, that when people look at our lives, Lord God, they would see a reflection of your character. They would see a people who take seriously our call to rightly steward this world in which you've entrusted to our care. So Lord, we come before you now as your people, and we pray these things in your great name. And all God's people said, amen.